This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for our children under 13. Our community has been dealt a terrible blow and together we grieve the loss of young Rose Harson. But in the fear and the confusion of these trying days, we must not fall in service to the dual idols of gossip and vanity. But we must remember what the Lord teaches us in Matthew. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and judge not that ye be not judged. For what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. William Gardiner? Chief Inspector, you are disrespecting the sanctity of the house of the Lord. And allowing a murderer to preach to your congregation does not defile his holy word? Please step down, Mr. Gardiner. Chief Inspector, this is most unusual. Unusual circumstances call for unusual actions. May I remind you? that it is illegal to arrest a man in a church. It is not not illegal, just poor form among gentlemen, unless he's declared sanctuary. Are you declaring sanctuary, Mr. Gardiner? No, sir. I have nothing to hide. I shall face my fate and trust in God that he shall bestow his mercy upon the righteous and that justice will be done. Very well, William Gardiner. You are under arrest for the murder of Rose Harsent. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You are listening to our second episode on the case of the Peasenhall murder. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie.
It was in the deeply religious town of Peasenhall Parish that Rose Harsent had worked as a maid for a bishop's family. But Rose was brutally murdered. She was stabbed in the chest, her throat slashed twice, and her body burned. Beside her was a broken lamp and a glass medicine bottle. And in her room was a letter from an unknown sender inviting her to a midnight rendezvous. Gardner was a married man with six children and a preacher of the Methodist Church in Peasenhall. But there had been rumors of an affair between him and Rose throughout the previous year. It was Rose's father who discovered the body. Rose! Rosie, my girl! Rose! Oh, no! Rose! Just three days later, Gardner was arrested for the crime. Then, after spending months in prison, the case went to trial, and a jury found Gardner guilty by a vote of 11 to 1. Amazingly, just a few months later, Gardner was a free man. But how? Was there some new evidence that cleared him? Or did another suspect come forward with a confession? Well, if you've learned anything from unsolved murder so far, it's that the solution is rarely that simple. And the Peasenhall case is no exception. So how did William Gardner manage to escape prison? And did he really kill Rose Harsent? Or was he just an easy scapegoat for another killer's crime? One thing that's really important to keep in mind is how gossip can affect the perception of a case. That's exactly right. Because the rumors that spread can often completely overtake and obscure the truth of what happened, which may be what happened in this case. When William Gardner was arrested and put to trial for the murder of Rose Harsent, it appeared to be an open and shut case. Gardner maintained his innocence to the end, but there was overwhelming evidence linking him to the killing. Or was there? First of all were the rumors. Gardner had been dealing with a year's worth of town gossip linking him to Rose. The murder happened in June of 1902. But in May of the previous year, two local busybodies claimed to have overheard Gardner and Rose having sex in an empty chapel. The pair denied everything. But the accusation was so serious that the elders of the primitive Methodist church held an inquest to determine the validity of the claim. The church's reputation was at stake and the elders couldn't risk compromising the integrity of the church leadership. The story was determined to be unsubstantiated, but it still spread like wildfire. Everybody in town knew about the incident. And once you hear a thing like that, it's hard to unhear it. Rose Harsent and William Gardner were permanently linked in everyone's minds. To add fuel to the fire, the medical examiner revealed that Rose was six months pregnant at the time of her death. Rose was an unmarried woman, and back then, having a baby out of wedlock literally could have ruined her chances of being considered respectable ever again. The autopsy report also concluded that she had attempted to perform an abortion on her own, but it had failed. Clearly, she was feeling hopeless and desperate. And so, we might gather, was the father of her unborn child. Even before examining the evidence, the situation looked bad for Gardner. But even more damning was the letter found in Rose's bedroom. A handwriting expert determined that it matched William Gardner's hand. And then there are the witness accounts. One neighbor claimed having seen Gardner looking at Rose's window on the night of the murder. Another said he saw a pair of muddy footprints leading from Gardner's house to the home where Rose lived and back again. Footprints that matched the boots Gardner owned. Yet another neighbor claimed to have seen a bonfire going at the Gardner's shortly before Rose's body was discovered. The kind of fire that might be used to destroy evidence? That's the thinking. But if Gardner was trying to keep a low profile, lighting a bonfire is hardly the way to divert attention. 
Mm, well, yes and no. A bonfire for burning leaves or something might not be that unusual in those days. Sure, maybe on an afternoon in the fall, but we're talking about summertime in the wee hours of the morning and just after a raging storm. Mm, good point. And then there's the matter of the bloody penknife. Gardner owned a penknife that doctors agreed could have been the murder weapon. And when they examined it, there was blood on the hinge. But they couldn't determine if it was human or animal. Well, it's suspicious enough to be taken into consideration. And then there's the newspaper. Rose's body had been burned with a bit of newspaper left at the scene. No one in the house subscribed to that particular paper, but Gardner did. And remember the medicine bottle? The one found beside Rose's body? The prescription on the label was for Mrs. Gardner's children. So, we can say for sure that bottle came from the Gardner's house. Knowing all of this information, Gardner's arrest and conviction seems inevitable. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, the story continues. I had nothing to do with it, I swear it. Please, my children, who will provide for them? That's a very hard question, Gardner. Were you thinking of that while you were with Miss Harsant? William Gardner spent the rest of the summer in prison. In full disclosure, throughout this episode, you will hear reenactments of the trial based off historical records that were kept. Oye, oye, oye. All rise for his honor, Justice William Grantham. Pizen Hall was too small to host the trial, so it was held at the courthouse in Ipswich, about 30 miles away. The distance is significant when you consider the process of jury selection. How so? British and American courts have a lot in common, but one major difference is jury selection. Here in the U.S., the lawyers have to agree on the jury members, right? That's right. But if there's someone they think will be biased towards one side or the other, the prosecution or the defense can strike that person and choose somebody new to take their place. And that can go on for a very long time. That seems like a tedious but fair practice. They don't do the same thing in England? No. British jury selection is purely random. Oh, interesting. So anyone who qualifies might end up on the jury. Yeah, and that's exactly why Gardner's defense attorney, Ernest Wilde, repeatedly emphasized that it would be nearly impossible for Gardner to get a fair trial too close to home. The man doesn't stand a chance of a fair trial in Pizen Hall. The townspeople are already familiar with the situation and have made up their minds about what happened. 
If it existed, no amount of evidence would convince them otherwise. Even as it was, Wilde knew that it was going to take some clever thinking to sway the jury's opinion in his favor. The prosecution was led by one Mr. Henry Fielding Dickens. Like Charles? Exactly the same. Henry was the son of the famous novelist and an extremely successful barrister in his own right. This was a high-profile case and put Little Peasenhall on the map. Through his presentation of the defense, Mr. Wilde made some pretty bold legal moves. He argued that although it was a widespread rumor, there was no proof that Gardner and Rose had an improper relationship. Wilde also tried to shake the testimony of the handwriting experts called in to analyze the letter found in Rose's room. But not only was Gardner's handwriting declared a match, the stationery on which it was written was identical to the kind Gardner had in his desk. Wilde had an answer for that, too. Just because it appears that Mr. Gardner is guilty of writing the note does not mean that he is guilty of committing the murder. The two must be considered as separate events. That is technically true, and the legal profession thrives on technicalities. Wilde also dismissed clergyman Henry Rouse as a jealous liar who envied Gardner's superior position in the church. Rouse was a fellow preacher in the primitive Methodist church. After the initial scandal with Gardner and Rose broke, Rouse inserted himself into the situation when he spotted the couple walking alone one dark night. According to the official transcript from the trial, Rouse recounted the details of his relationship to the scandal during his testimony. I want to know what you said to Gardner when you had seen him walking about with this girl after nine o'clock at night. I spoke to him and called him by name that night, and neither of them spoke then. When you passed them good night, did you mention his name? I said, good night, Gardner. Good night, Rose. And you got no answer? No. Wilde did his best to discredit Rouse. This story of yours is a lie from beginning to end, and a concocted story. Wilde was not playing around. As you might remember, a short time later, Rouse claimed to have seen Rose sitting with her feet in Gardner's lap in the chapel. Rouse was so scandalized by their brazen behavior that he wrote Gardner a letter. He claimed to have written it because he was so worried about the good of the chapel and of Gardner's soul. Mr. Gardner. I write to warn you of your conduct with that girl, Rose, as I find when she comes into the chapel, she must place herself next to you, which keeps the people's minds still in the belief that you are a guilty man, and in that case, you will drive many from the chapel, and those that would join to cause are kept away through it. We are told to shun the least appearance of evil. I do not wish you to leave God's house, but there must be a difference before God's cause can prosper which I hope you will see to be right as people cannot hear when the enemy of souls brings this before them. I wrote to you as one that loved your soul, and I hope you will have her sit in some other place and remove such feeling for which sake she will do. Rouse really seemed to take an unusual interest in this relationship, whatever the nature of it was. Rouse certainly seemed to think that it was inappropriate, perhaps because he had feelings for Rose and he was jealous. Or was he jealous of Gardner's position in the chapel and looking to undermine him? But was his jealousy so great that he would commit murder and frame William Gardner for the crime? Perhaps, but let's stick to the facts for now. 
Wilde was sure to point out the unreliable nature of witness testimony. Ironically, it was a witness who proved to be the greatest asset to the defense. The defense calls Georgina Gardner, the wife of the defendant, William Gardner, to the witness stand. Wilde did an excellent job of portraying Mrs. Gardner as a weak and sickly woman. <laughs> a pitiful figure who would be left in a terrible position to raise her six children if her husband went away to prison. Has your married life been happy? Yes, it has been a happy one. Has your husband been a good husband and a father? Yes. Do you remember a scandal in May 1901 being circulated about your husband? Yes. At the time, was there anything the matter with you? Yes. I was in bed. I'd been confined on the 3rd of May. Confinement at this time referred to a period of pregnancy. The whole time this scandal was going on about Rose and Gardner, Mrs. Gardner was preparing to give birth to another of William's children. Did this scandal make any difference in your married life? Not at all. Were you satisfied of your husband's innocence? Yes, quite satisfied. Did you know Rose Harsent? Yes. How long had you known her before her death? <sighs> Some years back. On what terms were you? Always on friendly terms. And she used to visit you at your house? Yes. And after this scandal, did she continue to visit? Yes. Did it make any sort of difference in your relations, either with your husband or the girl? No. Both sides were thorough in their questioning and went over every detail of the night. When you went to sleep, was your husband by your side? Yes, with one of our twins in his arms. She was having trouble sleeping because of the storm. Could he possibly have left the room from the time you got into bed and went to sleep? He could not. What time did your husband get up? We both got up at the same time. I ought to have asked you, what about the doors? Were they locked overnight? Yes. What sort of lock does the front door have? It has a lock and bar. I locked it myself. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> During her time on the stand, Mrs. Gardner needed frequent breaks, and at one point, Wilde even needed to break out some smelling salts for her. Well, she must have been really sick. Yeah. Or they were really selling the story of her being a sickly and unfortunate soul. Perhaps we might adjourn until the witness is recovered? The witness may be examined shortly. Are you well enough to continue, Mrs. Gardner? I think so. I want you to tell us about the medicine bottle. I remembered at one time giving Rose Harsent some camphorated oil in a medicine bottle. I took the oil out of my bottle and put it in the medicine bottle that the children had just finished their medicine out of. You always get camphorated oil? Yes. I always keep it in the house and use it for the children. And why did you give it to her? She had a very bad cold and face ache. Georgina had an answer for everything. Another witness, the gardener's neighbor, Amelia Pepper, testified that she had been awake all night due to the raging storm, but never heard or saw anyone going in or out of their home. During the entirety of Georgina's testimony, the focus is on William. Never once do the lawyers ask or insinuate that she herself might have committed the crime. But you think she did? It's a theory worth considering. Especially if they knew no one would ever suspect her. In a way, it's a brilliant plan. If the rumors were true, Mrs. Gardner would have a clear motive to want Rose dead. And she could commit the crime without an ounce of suspicion going her way. Because not only was she a woman and a mother, but also in poor health. 
so she could commit the crime without suspicion, and William would get off because technically he didn't do it. It's possible, but something about it doesn't quite work for me. What's that? The Georgina theory presents a very clear, very clever premeditated plan, but the condition of the crime scene was anything but sophisticated. That's true. The sloppiness of the act and the evidence left at the scene. The poor attempt to burn the body. What did Gardner have to say for himself? When Gardner himself took the stand, as usual, he denied everything. Mr. Gardner, how do you plead? Not guilty. But without providing much proof to establish his innocence. But before he concluded the presentation of his case, Ernest Wilde had one last trick up his sleeve. Gentlemen of the jury, I would like to present to you an alternate suspect. Take, for instance, Mr. Frederick James Davis. <gasps> Mr. Davis, were you acquainted with the victim, Miss Rose Harsent? Yes, sir. And what was the nature of your relationship? We were neighbors, sir. Your relationship was more than that of mere neighbors, was it not? We were friendly-like. Are you saying that you were friends with Miss Harsent? Yes, sir. Is it customary for friends of the opposite gender to exchange verses of a carnal nature? Um, well... You and Miss Harsent did share an interest in poetry, did you not? We did, sir. And those poems described carnal acts in great detail, did they not? They did, but it was Miss Harsent that requested them. That is a very interesting bit of information. She requested them from you? She did. And did you write them yourself? No. Well, some. You wrote some very passionate verses to Miss Harsent. Yes. Charmed by her beauty and feminine wiles, you carried a flame for Miss Harsent. I did. But those feelings were not reciprocated. No, sir. Miss Harsent would never give me a second look. Unless she wanted something from you, like the poems, or a book of medical instruction to perform a procedure to end the life of her unborn child so that she might preserve her good name. Yes, sir. Pregnancy is an incredibly private matter, Mr. Davis. From the fact that she confided in you, one might gather that you and Miss Harsent were rather close. Yes, sir. One might even suspect you might be the father of her child. I never laid a hand on her. I, I swear it. Whether or not you and Miss Harsent ever engaged in lovemaking, the truth remains evident. You loved the girl, but she didn't love you back. You knew that she was pregnant, and in a fit of jealousy, you might have killed the girl. But I didn't. Thank you, Mr. Davis. You have been very helpful. Mr. Davis, you have revealed yourself guilty of immoral and abominable conduct. But I do not believe you are a murderer. You are dismissed. Why did Ernest Wilde choose to accuse Frederick Davis of the murder? Wilde wasn't trying to throw suspicion on Davis as much as he was trying to make an example of him. I ask you to look at Mr. Davis not because I believe him to be the perpetrator of this crime, but to display how simple it is to build a case against an innocent man. Wilde's example with Davis was meant to be a device to show the jury how someone might be trying to frame Gardner for the murder. It was an aggressive maneuver, if less than effective. Why do you say that? Because it only barely worked. Gentlemen of the jury, in the matter of Rex versus Gardner, how do you find the defendant, Mr. William Gardner? My lord, in the matter of the murder of Miss Harsent, we are unable at this time to provide you with a unanimous vote. I beg your pardon? My lord, 
We have failed to reach a verdict. Mr. Foreman, I must admit that this is highly unusual. Is there any way in which I might be of assistance on the matter? Any questions that I might answer to aid? No, sir, there is nothing that I wish to ask. Do you think time might be of value to you in considering the question further? My lord, I have not made up my mind not to be contrary for the sake of it, but as both sides have presented their cases in their entirety, I maintain that there has been nothing to convince me of the man's guilt. He had a really good point. All of the evidence that links William Gardner to the scene of the crime is purely circumstantial. But that's crazy. It seems so obvious that Gardner did it. Well, luckily for some people, including William Gardner, seems isn't enough. That's just not the way the law works. I know that's a good thing, but how is that possible? Isn't there something that puts Gardner at the scene? In the modern era, we would be able to do DNA testing on the blood caught in the hinge of Gardner's penknife. But there was no DNA testing in 1902. Exactly. There isn't a shred of hard evidence that definitely puts William Gardner at the scene, wielding the blade that ended Rose Harsent's life, proving his guilt beyond a shadow of a doubt. When you put it that way, I can see how that's actually a good thing. And so the prosecution sought a second trial. Isn't that double jeopardy? Not quite. Double jeopardy prevents an accused person from being tried twice for the same charges following a valid acquittal or conviction. But since the jury wasn't able to reach a verdict, there was neither. Exactly. The second trial was held after the winter holidays in January of 1903. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Oye, oye, oye! All rise for his honor, Justice Sir John Compton Lawrence. The second trial was essentially a repeat of the same details as the first, with a few notable exceptions. During the first trial, Rose's younger brother Harry had taken the stand. When asked if he had ever carried mail between Rose and William Gardner, Harry had said no. But during the second trial, Harry had said that he had in fact carried letters between his sister and the preacher. They needed a third party to carry letters across the 200 yards between their houses? 
Well, what's wrong with that? Just that if you're having an affair and trying to keep it a secret, why involve anyone else? That seems like a huge oversight. Keep in mind, this was a long time ago. People didn't have the kind of worldly knowledge that we have now. Especially not in a tight-knit religious community. The same can be said about whoever committed the murder. This wasn't a professional assassin or a seasoned serial killer. Whoever killed Rose Harsent committed a premeditated act to get rid of her and her unwanted baby. And chances are, it was someone who knew her very well. What makes you say that? First, because Peasenhall was such a small community and everybody knew everyone. True. Second, because stabbings tend to be very personal. It's not like a gun or poison. To stab someone to death takes a lot of energy and commitment, and whoever killed Rose had plenty of both. If you think back on the medical examiner's description of her injuries, that becomes even more evident. The throat had been slashed across from ear to ear by two distinct cuts, inflicted with such force that the windpipe was completely severed. That will be important to remember when we consider the killer's motivation. But let's get back to the second trial. Gardner's defense attorney, Ernest Wilde, may have made a fatal mistake while cross-examining George Wright. If you remember from the previous episode, George Wright was one of the two young men who claimed to have heard Rose and Gardner having sex in the doctor's chapel. Mr. Wright, will you recall that Mr. Gardner freely admitted to having been in the doctor's chapel with Miss Harsent while he consistently denied any immoral activity had taken place? No. Despite that flub, Wilde continued on with his defense. He made a heartfelt appeal to the jury, heavily reliant on garnering sympathy for Mrs. Gardner and her children. And keep in mind, this was the Victorian era, and a woman with six children and a husband in jail didn't have a lot of options. It's also worth mentioning that Mrs. Gardner was ill at the time of the trial, and her failing health made her an even more pitiful character. The cost to her may have been even greater than it would have been to Gardner himself. Wilde's closing statement was long-winded and emotional. Part of it reads as follows. I have felt that my client stands a greater chance of an acquittal if his case is put before the jury as calmly and as dispassionately as may be. And if before I commence my final speech, I draw your attention shortly to the terrible nature of the task that you and I are called upon to perform. Believe me, gentlemen, that is not because I desire that sympathy should warp judgment, but because I am entitled to crave in aid of the accused the fact that you are called upon to give a verdict which is the most solemn that can be given by any 12 citizens of this realm. Of course, you see through what he's doing, right? What's that? Wilde was calling himself out, saying that he wasn't using sympathy to warp judgment when that's exactly what he was trying to do. How can you be so sure of that? Because he was a lawyer trying to win his case. Also because he knew that was the best chance he had to get his client off. The evidence wasn't there to exonerate him. All he had to go by were people's feelings. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And that's why you're not a lawyer. Dickens responded that such obvious appeals to emotion had no place in a criminal court. He said, Gentlemen, this case is not to be decided by words of counsel or suggestions of counsel. This case must be decided upon the facts which are brought before you. Hard, stubborn facts. And upon these alone. The jury retired at 5 p.m. and returned to the court two hours later. Gentlemen of the jury, are you agreed upon your verdict? 
No, sir. You are not agreed. Is there any chance of your agreeing? No, sir. None whatever? I am afraid not. If you are satisfied about that, it is my duty to discharge you. You have paid great attention to the case, and the only thing I can do for you is to make an order that you do not be called upon to serve on a jury again for seven years. So it happened again? It happened again. Only this time, the numbers were reversed. There were 11 who voted Gardner not guilty, and only one who voted guilty. But how? Well, there are a couple reasons. First of all, the more time that has elapsed between a crime and the trial, the more forgiving juries tend to be. That is interesting. So, if you're ever going to trial for committing a crime, see if you can push for a continuance. I'll keep that in mind. The other thing is that all of the evidence was circumstantial. In his own closing statement, the judge, Justice Lawrence, did a very thorough job of explaining the difference between direct and circumstantial evidence. He stated that sometimes circumstantial evidence can be more useful than direct evidence, but that all evidence is circumstantial for juries because none of them actually witnessed the crime firsthand. That's interesting. I've never thought of it that way before. I guess that's true. So, with that given, the only thing the jury members really have to go on is the witness testimony. Did they believe the witnesses? Were they reliable? It's hard to say for certain what would have done him in. What cold hard fact linked Gardner to the scene of the crime? None. So did they seek a third trial? No. A third trial would be futile. We have already exhausted every avenue, every bit of evidence, every witness testimony. There is nothing more to be done. So, what happened? The Attorney General issued a right of nole prosequi. I've never heard of that before. Nole prosequi is Latin for unwilling to pursue, so they just dropped it. And Gardner went free? Gardner went free, but his name was never officially cleared. He moved his family out of Suffolk and relocated to London, where he lived out the rest of his days until his natural death nearly 40 years later. So no matter what you think, justice was not served in the matter of Rose Harsent's death. So what do you think? Who really killed Rose Harsent? Well, who had a motive? Let's review the suspects. There's Frederick James Davis, the neighbor who had an unrequited crush on Rose. Maybe he killed her in a jealous rage after he learned that she was pregnant with another man's baby. That's a fine theory, but there's nothing more than speculation linking him to the crime. Okay. What about Henry Rouse, the rival clergyman? We know he had it out for William Gardner, but would he commit murder to frame Gardner and take over his position in the church? Perhaps, but consider what we said earlier about the nature of the attack. This murder was personal, but as far as we can tell, Rouse and Rose didn't have a personal relationship. If it had been Gardner who turned up with a slashed windpipe, maybe I would consider Rouse a suspect. But as it stands, I don't think it was him. What about Georgina Gardner? Hmm. What makes you say that? Motive alone. Assuming that there was a relationship between Rose and William at some point, he would have had some kind of feelings for her, making it more difficult for him to kill her. But not for his wife. Exactly. Rose's condition was threatening her family's good name and their station in the community. She would have been jealous of Rose and wanted to protect her children's welfare. But do you really think she could have pulled off the murder on her own? Why not? Georgina was a mother of six and a strong country woman. 
We don't have the two women's heights and weights, but it is reasonable to believe that Georgina could have overpowered Rose. Wasn't she sickly? Was she really sickly? Or was she playing it up to get sympathy from the jury? Hmm. It's an interesting theory, but I'm not sure that I'm there with you. Why not? Well, even if the marching orders came from Georgina, I think William was the one to wield the knife. It has to be tonight. What makes you say so? The sky. The rain's coming. Sure to be a heavy thunderstorm. Its roar will cover the sound of anything suspicious. And the cleansing rain will baptize us anew, rinsing away our sins. I'll do it at midnight. Write a letter asking her to meet you in secret so that you can ensure she's alone. Perhaps you might stage the scene to make it appear as if it were an accident on the stairs. Or that the poor wretch plotted to take her own life. God be with me. God be with our family. So you believe without a shadow of a doubt that it was the gardener's. I do. Gardner had a clear motive. The handwriting on the note was a match. His only witness is his wife, who had an obvious stake in the case. What do you think? Was it the Gardner's or just William Gardner? Was it Rouse or Frederick James Davis? Weigh in on Twitter at Parcast Network or on Facebook.com slash Parcast with your own theories. And don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll investigate the case of the Beaumont children. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire, and written by Lauren Cannon. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Joshua Kahn, Janice Liebhart, Harris Markson, Nicholas Massu, and Steve Pinto. 